Hello, um, my name is Johan Hari. I'm a British journalist. I wrote a book called Chasing the Screen, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, which is why I'm here. And I'm really excited to, to introduce Mark Lewis. I just wanted to speak for a second about um, the context to the work he's doing and a second about who he is, because I think it's really exciting and important what he's saying. There's a really profound debate going on across the world at the moment about the nature of addiction, what it is, and of course, if we don't know what it is, we can't know how to turn addicts' lives around. Um, and I think the broader context to the work that Mark's doing, just so you know how brave it is, is, you know, in 1970, Richard Nixon sets up something called the National Institute for Drug Abuse, NIDA, and he gives it a very specific job. Its job is to find evidence that the war on drugs is a good thing and that currently banned drugs are evil and we need to stop them and all of that stuff. And the National Institute of Drug Abuse today funds 90% of all research into currently illegal drugs across the world, not just in the United States, across the world. That means the vast majority of scientists um, who are working in this field take money from NIDA. And there are things that NIDA won't fund. And there are things you can't say if you want money from NIDA. And NIDA have been big promoters of a very narrow and very specific theory about what addiction is. And um, very few scientists challenge it because... The whole, you know, imagine if 90% of all the journalism in Australia was funded by Tony Abbott. What picture would you get of Tony Abbott, right? The, um, people would be afraid to challenge it. And what Mark is doing is so important. And there's so many taboos that he's, he's challenging. Um, he's the professor of neuroscience and developmental psychology at Radboud University in the Netherlands. He's previously been a professor at the University of Toronto. His academic work is really prodigious. He's published over 50 journal articles. I actually first uh, learned about his work when I read his memoir, uh, his book, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. For Mark, this isn't just an abstract question. This isn't just an academic question. For the almost the whole of his 20s, he had a very serious opiate addiction, uh, which he's written about very bravely. His new book, which he'll be signing after this event, and I'll flag that up again, is The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease. Um, this is such an exciting thing to be able to do. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Mark Lewis. Thank you. Th thank you, Johan. That was really a very generous introduction. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't feel so... I have to be so brave in Australia because people are so nice and friendly. It's great to be here. Um, Okay, so um, I'm going to take you through this. Um, learning addiction, what if addiction isn't a disease at all? Uh, I guess that's the dangerous idea. Or maybe by the end of this, we might feel that the dangerous idea is that addiction is a disease. <laughs> if that's a wrong idea and it's so dominant and so prevalent, then that's kind of dangerous, right? Bad ideas are bad. Um, okay, that was profound. <laughs> okay, so there, there are a number of models of addiction, the ways of conceptualizing it, and of course the disease model is the one that I will be arguing against. It's converse is the choice model, the idea that people choose to do addictive things or take addictive drugs. It's a more cognitive model, obviously. Um, 
There's other models. There's the traumatic early history model, which, which implies that, that addiction is about self-medication, because if you've been through difficult, difficulties in your childhood or adolescence, then you probably don't feel very good. You probably have some anxiety or depression that you have to live with, and then addiction can make you... Addiction doesn't make you feel better, but the drugs that you take that you eventually become addicted to may make you feel better, and that was the case for me uh, in my 20s. Uh, and finally, the learning model, which is the model that I espouse uh, here, with the idea that addiction is learned. Um, and as Johan says, NIDA is a very powerful organization, and they define addiction very clearly as a chronic relapsing brain disease that is characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite harmful consequences. So the key words here are chronic, okay, chronic brain disease. Um, and they talk about it, brain imaging studies from drug-addicted individuals show physical changes, physical changes in areas of the brain that are critical for judgment, decision-making, learning and memory and behavior control. And, um, you know, again, physical changes is the important phrase here. And finally, they, they uh, pretty much agree that uh, in vulnerable individuals, the disease of addiction is produced by chronic administration of the drugs themselves. In other words, and this is something you talk about in your book as well, the idea that drugs cause addiction, that has been the premise. That's been the sort of, yeah, well, what else? Uh, but in fact, both Johan, Johan and I uh, don't think so. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, so here's the basic model. You've got, does this thing work as a beamer as well? I wonder if it does. I'm used to using my finger. Oh, it does. Okay, so that, that thing there, uh, that's the striatum. It's been around for a few hundred million years. It's been evolving for a long time. And its job is to, um, is to make you pursue goals, to get you to pursue goals. So it's really important for mammals uh, to pursue goals, obviously. Uh, food, sex, and all the rest of it. Uh, protection, shelter, escape from predators. Those are all goals. And to do that, mammals, unlike frogs, need to be motivated. Frogs just have some kind of circuitry that, you know, they, flick, they, see, they see a fly go by and their tongue flicks out, and that's, that's great for a frog. But for us, we have to be motivated. So what the striatum does besides, uh, it, it narrows and focuses your attention on the goal, but it also pushes you towards the goal. And that push is basically desire. In the simplest form, that is desire. And desire is an extremely important emotion which directs a lot of our activities in life. So there's that part, the more ancient part, and then there's this part, the prefrontal cortex, uh, dorsolateral up here, that's one of the most sophisticated rooms in the prefrontal cortex, and it's responsible for judgment, decision-making, perspective-taking, uh, all that good stuff, insight. And usually, you know, there is a conversation between these parts of the brain, they're very much connected, um, and they have to be connected so that you can continue to modulate your desires and decide what's the best way to achieve whatever you want to achieve without getting in too much trouble and, you know, get more of it rather than less and so on and so forth. And by the way, both of these systems are fueled by dopamine. So you hear a lot about dopamine when you read about addiction in science journals. And they used to call dopamine the pleasure chemical, but it's not really about pleasure. What dopamine does is it activates these systems to focus attention, narrow attention, and drive desire. Okay, so dopamine is very important as you start to get closer and closer to the goal, and you really want it, and you really want it, and, the dope, and you get more dopamine, and it's like, you know, it's the only thing on the radar. So uh, 
in, in addiction, what happens is that you get, um, sorry, you get a kind of breakdown of the communication between these regions. They start to become partially disconnected when drugs or booze or gambling are on the horizon. And does that sound like a disease? It does sound kind of like a disease, but it's not, and here's why. Here's why. Um, advantages of the disease model, I'll, I won't bother. I'll let them do their own advertising. Uh, forget about that. Um, okay, the first thing is, uh, so we're... I'm not the only person who says addiction is about learning, that it's learned. Other people say that too, but I'm one of the very few people who comes at that from a biological perspective. So I can talk the talk, and I can argue with the people at NIDA, the people who do the, uh, the medical neural research, because I, I understand aspects of the brain, but I understand it as a developmental psychologist, okay, not as a... So I see things in terms of development rather than pathology. That's a really different perspective. And, and uh, so what I say is that brains change with learning and development. That's, well, everybody knows that. The brain changes hugely from infancy and childhood throughout adolescence. And, and uh, it's changing all the time. It's supposed to change. You, you don't want your liver to change a whole lot during your lifespan or your pancreas or your lungs. Most organs, you want them to stay exactly the way they are. But your brain, no, you don't want it to stay the way it is. It needs to change, that's how it does learning. That's how it learns, is by forming different connections, new connections between the, the neurons, between the brain cells, those are called synapses, those connections, forming new synaptic patterns all the time and trimming off the old synaptic patterns, which is called pruning. And the brain is supposed to change. So what I say is that Brains change with learning and development, so brain change doesn't mean brain disease unless the brain changes seen in addiction are very different from those seen in... Wait for it. Wait for it. <laughs> uh, those seen in... Uh, oops. <laughs> that was quick. It had to be quick. <laughs> um, normal development. They have to be pretty different, okay? So are they? Are they different? Well, in general, learning equals, like I said, synaptic restructuring, and that leads to habit formation, because as you learn stuff, you are forming habits. That's how learning works. When you learn how to ride a bike, you know how to ride a bike, and you don't have to think about it anymore. Same with learning to play the violin, same with learning language, same with learning how to drive a car. Learning gives rise to habits. So that's kind of a clue to where I'm going. Um, in normal development, this is what you see. You see that the brain becomes more and more blue. No, actually, that's a, <laughs> it's not exactly what happens. Um, what happens, this is a movie of, uh, taken from MRI uh, images from kids from the age of 4 to 20, averaged together. And what you see, this blueing, let me see if I can make it do that again. This blueing is a process of synaptic pruning. Okay, and if you look at the scale on the right, you see that the colors at the bottom of the scale are more blue and purple, and those are the thinnest parts of the cortex. So what that means is you are pruning and pruning and pruning, which makes the cortex more efficient. People think that brain development is just about new synapses, synaptogenesis. It's not. A lot of it is about trimming synapses, pruning synapses, so that the brain becomes a, a lean, mean machine, okay, a streamlined machine. That's how it's supposed to go in development. And here's Again, uh, the bluing, the thinning of the brain, 
over 16 years in eight seconds. Boom, now you've got a mature brain, okay? All right, so I just want to give you a sense of the scale of this thing. There's a lot of change going on in normal development. In the height of, uh, okay, I'll read it. As many as 30,000 synapses may be lost per second over the entire cortex during the pubertal adolescent period. 30,000 synapses per second, that's a lot, per second. Okay, so massive, massive brain change in normal development. So that's the first point. Now, the folks at NIDA, the diseased people, want you to look at this and say, look, with years of use of alcohol, cocaine, and heroin, with years of use, you get a thinning, a reduction in gray matter volume. Gray matter volume just means synapses, basically, for us, synapses. You get a reduction in synapses, down, down, down. The longer you use drugs, the, the more you pruning you get. And that's in certain areas of the prefrontal cortex and, and related areas. So that, again, sounds kind of like a disease, until you think about it more carefully. And when you think about it more carefully, you recognize that pruning is important and actually makes the brain more efficient. So when you're taking drugs for years, the brain is actually getting more efficient. It's getting more efficient at, you know, getting loaded, which, which, which is maybe not such a good thing, uh, according to our, you know, morals and stuff. But the brain doesn't care. It's just getting more efficient at something because it's, a, it's repeated. It's a repeated thing. The brain gets more efficient. But here's the cool part of this story. These researchers found that when people abstain from drugs, from 40 to 60 weeks, the uh, density of those regions goes back up, 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 up crosses the baseline for normal people who've never been addicted and keeps on going up. So that implies that you're learning new stuff. Okay, so this, this is neuroplasticity. So pruned synapses can be replaced through subsequent learning. That's neuroplasticity in a nutshell, which takes away from the idea that addiction is a chronic brain disease. Whatever you want to call these changes, they're not chronic. There's no dead ends. The brain doesn't suddenly stop changing. And there's been a lot of work on neuroplasticity in the last, well, a couple of decades. Norman Doidge, probably some of you know uh, the, the brain that changes itself. And we, we know this happens when people have strokes or concussions or traumatic brain injury. The brain just regrows stuff. So why shouldn't that happen when people give up drugs? It does happen, and here's evidence. Okay, so um, I'm going to go just a little further on this. The brain, brain change, again, doesn't mean brain disease unless the brain changes seen in addiction are different from those seen in, what's next on the list, seen in behavioral addictions. And I won't get into the details, but there are many addictions that have nothing to do with drugs, as I'm sure you know. Gambling, compulsive gambling, porn addictions, sex addictions, uh, internet gaming addictions um, is now joined. And many eating disorders actually have features very much like addiction. Well, the fact is is that the brain changes seen in all of these behavioral addictions are exactly the same as those seen in drug addiction. Okay, not exactly, but they're mostly the same, uh, which implies that addiction goes with... Um, that addiction is a psychological process that, yes, it's a kind of learning, and yes, it involves brain change, but the brain changes are not produced by drugs, because if they were, you wouldn't see them in gambling addiction. You just wouldn't see them, but you do. Okay, so it's not about drugs, it's about habit formation. Um, and uh, <laughs> that would take the rest of my time, so I, I won't bother with that. <laughs> but just take my word for it that there is a sequence of brain changes that are completely uh, a parallel in behavioral and drug addictions. 
And, and finally, brain change doesn't mean brain disease unless the brain changes seen in addiction are different from those seen in falling in love. Unless falling in love is also a disease, which sometimes it does seem... <laughs> it has all, all kinds of nasty, uh, sometimes fatal effects. Um, but in fact, uh, uh, this is just a summary of a whole bunch of research. Like with drugs of abuse, mesolimbic dopamine is a major contributor to the formation of pair bonds in prairie voles, and particularly in the nucleus accumbens, that's part of the striatum. Mating has been shown to cause dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens and rodents. Sorry, that's just the southern pole of the, of the striatum. And why do they study Prairie voles, well, it's one of the very few mammals that happens to be uh, monogamous. It's supposed to be a, an analog to human sexuality, but it's a, <laughs> a matter of debate. Um, anyway, you need dopamine to be, to be attracted, to be strongly sexually attracted, that whole early phase of romance, uh, which all you can think about is the positive features of your loved one. It's the only thing you want is to be with them. You don't think about the negatives. You don't think about the fact that this is going to get you in a lot of trouble, uh, maybe. And so it's very much like drug addiction, psychologically, but also neurally. Okay, so again, these brain changes are not specific to addiction. They're not specific to drugs. It has, they have to do with learning something which is highly motivating and which involves repetitive behavior. That's all you need. Highly repetitive behavior to something that's highly attractive and motivating. Okay, so I'm going um, to skip ahead a bit and say... Um, so if addiction is just a kind of learning, then why is it sort of special? What's special about it? And in my book, um, The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, I talk in, in detail about five addicts who I interviewed on Skype. I interviewed them very thoroughly, got to know them well, and I tell their stories, what it was like when they got into their addiction and got through it and tried to stop in different ways and finally did stop. Um, First comes uh, Natalie, these are all pseudonyms, a heroin addiction, she's a young woman, college girl. Uh, Brian, methamphetamine addiction, um, what do I call him? Johnny, alcohol, obviously. Uh, Madonna, pills, she stole pills from everywhere she could find them and got in a lot of trouble with her family. Um, and the eating disorders, uh, this, is, this was uh, Alice who got a binge eating disorder. So I talk about these people and I interlace those stories with the, what's going on in, in the brain. The brain stuff is pretty light and user-friendly and I use the stories to help you understand what it feels like. And I think it's really important to do this fusion between what's going on under the skin and what's going on in a person's life. I think that's critical for, our, for us to really understand addiction. Okay, so what I bring to bear three psychological issues that make it particularly hard to break the habit of addiction, whether it's sex, love, uh, um, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it is. The first is now appeal, a tendency to go after immediate rewards. The second is ego fatigue. And the, the third is this whole issue of personality development, how we can think of addiction as part of personality development. It's not just an overlay, it's something you grow into and then hopefully grow out of. That's a developmental perspective. Okay, so first, now appeal. So here's the, uh, the villain, the striatum. Again, this is what it looks like on an MRI scan. 
and you get dopamine flowing up to the striatum, the nucleus accumbens, and it focuses attention on the immediate goal, and that produces craving. And craving, all addicts will say that craving is the worst of their problems. Craving is the one thing that trips you up because you can stop taking whatever it is, methamphetamine, coke, heroin, uh, you name it, for six months or six years. And again, if the craving comes out, it's hard. It becomes hard to, to, um, uh, to, to get by it. Um, it's a problem. And it's specifically a problem because... All mammals and many other species actually have this very peculiar thing that's a cognitive bias where the immediate reward seems to have a lot more value than the long-term reward. Okay, so here's value. The value goes up, and these are mathematical curves that define this relationship. People study this stuff. And you can see here that the cake curve goes up a lot quicker as the guy's approaching the cake than this curve, which leads to, I guess, being slim and fit or something like that, or healthy. I don't know when you don't eat cake what the advantages are, but there must be <laughs> some. <laughs> so, so the question is, why is that man going after the cake? And the reason is because it seems worth more than imagined future happiness. It just seems more, and, and you can... Observe that because the blue line goes up really fast as you approach the goal. So that's why it's now appeal. As the goal gets closer, the thing seems to be worth more. And we all experience this all the time. Uh, you know, I've, I've got twin boys at home, and I've, I've, for years I've done this. They're great for experiments. <laughs> um, and... Uh, so for years, you know, when we go into a restaurant, uh, uh, we, we pass the mint bowl. Even though we live in the Netherlands, there's always a mint bowl. And, and I say, well, would you like one mint now or would you like three mints after dinner? And for years, they've said, I want one mint now. <laughs> That's it, right? But since they've turned seven or eight, they have been saying, well, you know, maybe I'll wait for the three mints after dinner. So now their prefrontal cortex is pruning and getting more efficient and growing and getting better and better at regulating and overseeing and supervising the striatum, that goal-focused that goal uh, um, tissue. And so that's what they're learning to do is overcome now appeal. That's a natural developmental process. But in addiction, unfortunately, some of that process gets lost. Addicts lose the capacity to think more about the future. Why? Partly because the drive is so strong, partly because the thing is so rewarding, and partly just it's just habit. It's a habit of thinking where you worry and think about, how, what am I going to do today? How am I going to get some today? Uh, how am I going to pay for it? How am I going to not get in trouble about it? So you continue to get trapped in the present tense and the now and you lose the actual habit or tendency to think about next week and that's obviously a problem because you don't then think you don't then plan on recovering and getting better because you don't think about the future you can't think about the future it stops making sense to you I think that's a really serious psychological problem for addicts and um, so what you end up with is this kind of uh, situation now appeal breaks the connection between the present and the future, and that drink right now seems worth more than that happy marriage that you could look forward to, you know, six months or whatever. Okay, so you get the idea. And in brain terms, uh, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is supposed to be informing the, the uh, sorry, I should have mentioned, the nucleus accumbens is code for the striatum. It's the same thing. It's that piece of tissue in the middle. Um, and uh, that connection, oops, uh, <laughs> that connection gets sort of broken, uh, or at least it, they, they become desynchronized. Um, okay, so that's now appeal.
And now the second psychological phenomenon, that, which is pretty hard to overcome, is ego fatigue. And ego fatigue is what happens when you try to suppress an impulse for some period of time. And it's like holding your arm out to the side for some, it's easy for five minutes, but it's not easy for an hour. And if you keep telling yourself, no, no, I won't, no, I can't, no, I shouldn't, no, I mustn't, it's hard. And your brain isn't designed for that. It's not good at that. So you get ego fatigue. That means it becomes a real strain and you eventually tend to give in. So that's the second psychological problem that addicts have. And here's the classic experiment um, is People come into the lab hungry. They're told to come in hungry. And uh, this, was, this stuff was, uh, it's been investigated hundreds of times in psychology labs. And in, in a classic experiment, your subjects are given um, a bowl of radishes and a bowl of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. And half the group is told, uh, you can eat as many radishes as you want, but no cookies. And the other half is told, you can eat as many cookies as you want, but no radishes. So this is a perfectly controlled psychological experiment. And guess what? After about 10 minutes of that, the, um, the people in the, hold on, the people in the can't eat the cookies group do more poorly on cognitive tests. They've lost a certain capacity for cognitive uh, acuity, for a cognitive override. You actually lose some cognitive uh, um, what to call it, um, capacity for thinking, really. It's capacity for thinking. You get, it gets strained and tired and wears out. And these people also give up on the task more quickly. So um, suppressing impulses is not the right thing to do. If you have strong impulses that you'd like to not give into, don't suppress them. Suppression doesn't work. What does work is reframe them. If you reframe them, then you can save yourself from ego fatigue, which means, you know, I don't really like chocolate chip cookies. I really like something, you know, whatever, uh, cheesecake, um, you know, or whatever it is, or I'm having lunch next, or, you know, this is going to wreck my appetite. You reframe the problem, you don't get ego fatigue. But if you just try to quash it and suppress it, then you do. And that's what addicts are doing all the time. They're being told, say no to drugs. And saying, saying no is exactly the wrong policy because what's been demonstrated in the lab is pure suppression brings on ego fatigue more quickly and makes it more powerful. Okay, so that's number two. And number, oh yeah, and this is where I live um, in the Netherlands right now. And you know, the cues for drugs, especially alcohol, which is obviously a drug, are all, all over the place and you can't get rid of them. And since the cues start this cascade of dopamine to the striatum and the desire and the wishes and the craving, as soon as the cues are, are in your environment, then, uh, uh, then the cycle starts and then, then you have to say, no, I won't go there and then you're in trouble, okay? Um, Okay, and the third part is just the way personality forms. The way all learning and development happens is that you, you get this profusion of synapses. I use ivy as an analogy, the ivy that grows in your garden. This profusion of synapses, which are kind of messy. And then with repeated re experience, repeated, repeated experience, whether it's learning music, learning to drive a taxi, learning to uh, communicate with people, learning to share, whatever it is, that network of synapses changes and becomes more consolidated through pruning. It becomes more efficient, becomes more streamlined, and that's how the brain grows, and that's how the brain becomes a highly efficient cognitive machine. Okay? 
So, but when what you're learning is to say yes to drugs and you're learning through repeated exposure that this is what makes you feel better, this is what provides relief, this is what, you know, this is what's the most important thing in your life, then all the other goals and all the other satisfactions that you had available to you fall off the edge of the table. They fall off the radar. And, and that's really serious because what you have learned is that this is what's important, nothing else is nearly as important, and that learning becomes a part of who you are. It's not just a habit of thinking and feeling, it's also a habit of attaching meaning to something. Okay? This is meaningful, this is valuable. And that's why people who get into drugs, get into drug cultures, get into groups who do drugs, get into um, cliques, they, you know, it's not just the drug taking, but it's also the whole social fabric that it goes with becomes part of it. And you see yourself as a drug, I'm a drug user, I'm, you know, a rebel without a cause, I'm a loser, whatever it is, or else, you know, I'm a, a, I'm a, whatever, a subculture hero, or whatever it is. But you start to define yourself in those terms. And that's all part of the synaptic formation and synaptic uh, uh, consolidation that goes on with repeated, repeated, repeated use, repeated behavior. Okay, so... Um, so I want to I I spend the last five or ten minutes... Uh, telling you why I think the disease model of addiction isn't just wrong, it's also harmful. It's, it's, uh, there's something about it that uh, is, is really bad for addicts and their families, um, despite the fact that it's been so prevalent. And why the disease model fails addicts? The disease model calls for medical treatment. If you have a disease, you go to the doctor, you get medical treatment, right? Uh, and medicalization makes addicts into patients. You see the doctor, you're the patient. And patients don't feel that they have the power to change their goals because they're not formulating those goals, somebody else's. So when you're a patient, you follow instructions and you follow instructions that are given to you by an authority and that's your job. And so being a patient is kind of the converse, it's diametrically opposed to the feeling of generating goals and, and sensing empowerment about pursuing those goals. And many experts believe that that sense of empowerment is critical for overcoming addiction. You have to be able to decide, I don't want to do this anymore, this is wrecking my life, I hate it, this is shit, and I want to be different. And once you start to feel that way, once you decide that you want to quit, then you're ready and then you can do it, okay? But if you're a patient, you're never in a position to do that because you're always in a position of following someone else's instructions. Um, so how do we help addicts feel empowered? Well, we need to strengthen their desire for other goals or help them strengthen their desire for other goals, focus on other goals, find those goals. And, you know, the analogy that comes to my mind, what happens when you give the wheel to your teenage kid, the wheel of the car? You get a whole different thing. When you're driving, the kid doesn't care where you're going, right? And the kid doesn't care what condition the car is in. But as soon as the kid is the driver, your, you know, 18-year-old ch child, uh, Everything changes. This is now really important to me. This, I want to go there and I can get there and I know how to do it. I want to make sure the car's got gas in it. I want to make sure there's air in the tires. All that stuff. Okay, so it's a whole different attitude towards direction, towards where you're going. So that's the first thing. Capture that desire. Capture it. Nurture it. The second thing, how do we help addicts get from now to later? So how do we combat now appeal? How do we get them out of that eternal now, that vortex that's sucking them into the moment? How do we do that? 
And I think that um, by helping them identify and hold on to future goals, so not identifying those goals for them, but um, helping them to envision a future self, take aim at that self, and advancing towards that future self. Okay, and that needs to come from them. And when it does, you, I mean, there's ways to do this. There's all kinds of psychological approaches to helping people focus on what kind of future do, do you like? Can you think about your future? Let's think about next week. Let's think about next month. Would you ever like to have kids? Would you like to have a family? Uh, there's motivational interviewing. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's rational emotive therapy. There's all kinds of support groups. There's contingency management. There's mindfulness meditation. There's a whole bunch of psychological approaches that are useful for helping people figure out and clarify and hold on to a sense of who they are and where they want to go. And it's very different from any kind of medical approach. There's nothing medical about it. There's nothing like treating a disease. Okay, so... I think those are the directions we need to go in. And I, I don't have a magic bullet, you know, I don't have a therapy manual that I'm ready to hand out, but I think these are really important directions for us to think about. Um, and so, treatment, I think, will work best by connecting empowerment to a sense of personal time, activating desire for other goals. There we go with the nucleus accumbens, the striatum. Um, I want to quit. Imagining a future self, reactivating the bridge to the prefrontal cortex, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, connect the striatum back to the prefrontal cortex. You can do that with repeated trials of thinking about other goals rather than thinking about getting high. This is who I want to be, this is who I can be, this is who I will be. And seeing your present self as a stage in your development from past to present to future. So it's not just about now, but now is part of a continuum that stretches from who I was to who I'm going to be. I think that's, I think that's the formula that we need to, uh, to consider. And so, uh, and, and finally, um, yeah, and I think that's what leads to self-forgiveness and self-trust, and I don't have a lot of time to go into that, but if you think about where you've come from, that helps you forgive yourself for where you're at now, because addicts don't feel very good about themselves, right? Uh, and in order to learn to forgive themselves for doing what they're doing, it helps to think about where they've come from, the, the pain and depression and anxiety that has probably been a pretty important factor in moving them towards the lifestyle that they're now living. So that's important. And then continue that line, that timeline, into the future. And there you go. Um, and to base this kind of approach on science, I think we need to connect the neurobiology of addiction with the experience of addiction. I think that's really important. And that's what I try to do in my books. And there they are. Um, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> Great. So, thanks, Mark. Thanks, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take some questions. I think are there microphones at the front here, or they didn't? I forgot to ask the guys backstage where they are. Oh, you can see them better than me because you appear to be shrouded in darkness. But one and two. So while you go forward, I'll just ask um, ask Mark a few questions myself. Sure. It's really fascinating what you were saying, Mark. I was wondering how much of these insights were kind of in embryo, based on your own experiences of addiction. How much grew out of your own? Could you have had these insights without your personal experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when I quit, I, I was about 30, and it was after many attempts. And I wasn't sure exactly why it finally worked. I mean, I did certain things, and I, I uh, talked to myself in a different way, and um, 
I'd gotten sick of it, really, really sick of it, as people often do. And, um, but I didn't, I don't know exactly, I didn't know at the time why it worked. Now, like, you know, 30 years later, I went back and thought about it a lot, and I retrieved a whole pile of journals. I'd been keeping copious notes, because I was really trying to, you know, talk myself out of it for years. And I went back to those journals, and I followed the progression, and and then I started to understand it. So it was really a whole second take. That's fascinating. We've got, okay, we'll take someone at uh, number two, first of all. Hi. Uh, yeah, hi. Thanks. Uh, great talk. Oh, um, thanks. So, given this new theory of uh, retraining the brain and neuroplasticity, what's your views on uh, conventional medication to increase dopamine uptake, this knowledge you have? Okay, I'm really glad you asked that. Uh, I, I don't think that medicine has to, you know, be completely... Uh, uh, <laughs> I think medicine is an important adjunct to addiction treatment sometimes. It's not necessarily for gambling or sex addiction, but for opiate addiction in particular, for things that are, have physical withdrawal symptoms, physical addictions that, that lead to uh, uh, extreme discomfort during withdrawal, and alcohol can as well if, it's, uh, if you drink enough, um, then medication could be very valuable for helping addicts move through that stage. Okay, hopefully it's a stage. Some people go on long-term um, maintenance doses of buprenorphine or methadone, and uh, that's probably not quite as uh, advantageous because you remain addicted to something for, for years, possibly, and that's not the best thing. But as an adjunct to get them through the transition, sure, why not? I think, you know, if that helps, great. But couple that with other ways to get to the heart of the matter so that that's not the only, uh, that's not the only change that you're, that you're making. Thanks. So we'll go to number one, yeah. Hi. Uh, hi, Mark. Hi. Um, I just want to note, um, in regards to like a drug-induced psychosis, can the brain uh, heal itself from that point? Uh, yeah, drug-induced psychosis, well, you get that with, uh, with methamphetamine if you miss sleep. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an interaction effect between the meth and, and sleep deprivation. That's what leads to psychosis. You get that with crack cocaine as well. And very, very occasionally you get it with psychedelics, but it's extremely rare. I mean, what can you say about it? You know, people need sleep, and uh, people start thinking really funky things if they get dream deprivation for several days. So it's a real problem, and I know it's a problem in Australia right now. Yeah. Sorry, just to do the implication of your question, can people recover from that? Is that the... Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. on what you just presented to us yeah. with the, uh, the pruning of the synapses, I thought maybe there could be some uh, damage that's undone through that process from a drug-induced psychosis. The, the second character of my book, as I mentioned, a guy called Brian had a methamphetamine addiction, lasted for several years. He was deeply into it. He, he took a lot. Uh, and he's fine now. He's in really good shape. In fact, he's getting a PhD. Uh, obviously, you know, that's... So, that means you're a fantastic person. <laughs> Fully evolved is he, is human he being. medicated? So. Uh, no, not at all, no. It turns out meth is a gateway drug to PhDs. <laughs> the, but this is, this, this is really... No, I think it's important. Yeah, it's, yeah not, not to make, make too light of it. And yeah. I, I, I think that... In psych- Sorry. No, it's like, no, that was, that was a good joke. <laughs> uh, I thought it was opiates, actually. <laughs> that led to a PhD. Um, I don't think psychosis necessarily implies a brain damage. I think it means you start thinking in a, in a, in a really distorted way, and 
Brain change underlies all changes in thinking and behavior. So yes, there's brain change involved, but I, unless, I mean, in the case of schizophrenia, obviously that's a chronic condition that is very difficult to, uh, to, to um, dismantle. Uh, but with temporary psychosis of the sort that you get from methamphetamine abuse, no, I don't think, there's, I don't think that implies lasting brain, brain damage, not at all. And it's fascinating just to develop this very slightly because um, I, I won't ask if the anxiety in your question is relating to yourself or to someone you know, but the, it's fascinating. People are being told in Australia by their government the whole time that ice, if you use it once, you'll become addicted. It will permanently damage your brain. The police refer to it as mind-eating. It's even routinely mentioned in news reports by police officers and politicians that ice gives you, the phrase they use is, superhuman strength. Yeah. So if you think about it for a second, there is nothing that can make a human being superhuman in my understanding. What, how would you respond to, the, to those claims? What would you say to people here who are hearing those? From your book, I get that people were saying that about cocaine back in, what was it, the 20s and 30s? Yeah, yeah. Um, and especially minority groups, black people will definitely will you know, get superhuman strength and do horrible things. So it's been used as a political tool and a tool of a kind of oppression and punishment for in many different contexts over time. Uh, there's n as, you, oh, as you also say in your book, also Johan's book, Chasing the Scream, is a, a wonderful read, um, is that uh, most people, when they take drugs, do not get addicted. Something like 15% uh, are likely to become addicted. The rest try it a few times, even addictive drugs I'm talking about. Try them a few times and say, eh, bad idea, let's move on here. Or they don't, yeah. So, so that's the first point. The second point is that most people who do get addicted actually recover. A majority of addicts recover. And the third point is that a majority of those who recover, recover without any form of formal treatment. So this kind of propaganda that if you take it once, you become addicted and you, know, you will, will lead, lead to hell and, and death and damnation. I mean, it's, it's, it's so exaggerated. That the message is so twisted that it loses plausibility, and because it loses plausibility, it becomes completely ineffective. It's like the war on drugs in the States. You know, you, this is your brain on drugs, and they would show a picture of, of an egg in a frying pan. Well, you know, <laughs> it's just dumb. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll go to number two. Hi. Hi. Um, <clears throat> thanks. Thanks for what you had to say. Um, I'm curious about. Um, uh, the other side of this coin, which is instead of talking about prevention, uh, talking about curing addiction, um, talking about preventing it, um, I got, as you say, most most people who take drugs don't become addicted. And if you talk about all of the other things that we could do that could lead to to habit forming addictions, what does what does this model have to say about uh, preventing that, preventing becoming addicted? Yeah, I didn't get into some of the precursors of addiction, um, but the, uh, the idea that some kind of trauma, psychological uh, or physical or sexual uh, abuse, neglect, um, difficulties during adolescence, social isolation, it's a big one, uh, and uh, uh, all kinds of difficulties lead to depression and anxiety, which themselves those are the gateways to addiction, or depression and anxiety. People don't take drugs or develop uh, compulsive gambling disorders if they feel good. They just don't. So the best way to prevent addiction is to help people with psychological problems, especially young people, deal with those problems before they get to the age where they're going to get exposed to drugs. And, you know, I mean, I just think that's, that's really the answer. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks. Uh, there are stories uh, which the media often like of 
people with various issues being helped through animal husbandry, uh, some of those relate to addiction. Are they simply fad stories or is that actually a valid way of helping people transverse those stages they need to go through? to get to uh, that end point of the three, uh, the three items you listed? I assume by animal husbandry you mean getting a pet, not literally marrying an animal, oh, which we do not advocate. We're dangerous ideas, but not, that, not bestiality <laughs> is, uh, is our line here. I'm only familiar with the first nuts. Okay, yeah. good. Great, thank um, you. Too. No, but there are, there, are, there are places, horse farms and, and right. sheep farms, where I understand uh, yeah. that they concentrate on that. So this is like what they call equine therapy, for example. That's what it's called in the US. They have to find a nice flashy title for it, equine therapy. Um, but, you know, truthfully, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the big problems with the disease model that I didn't get into is that it is the foundation for the logic of the current rehab industry. And sometimes doctors, psychiatrists, and addicts and their families uh, will uh, give me uh, a lot of flack or... or really feel very resistant to my message because they feel that I'm pulling the rug out from under the rehab industry by saying addiction is not a disease. Well, this rehab industry is not working very well. And one reason it's not working very well is because it's a hodgepodge of giving medications like buprenorphine. Okay, fine, that works for some people, especially if they're on opiates. Um, but also, the 12-step 12 uh, 12 methods are just you know ubiquitous. They keep seeping into rehabs one after another, even the rehabs that say they don't rely on 12-step methods still use 12-step methods. It's like it's 80 or 90%. And as I think many people know, 12-step methods are not reliably effective. They are effective for a small proportion of people. Well, so you get those two things, and then you get all the other stuff. You get all the group work, and you get repeating mantras and slogans, and you get... Um, and then you get the other offshoots into these kinds of fringy things, massage and yoga and equine therapy. And probably some of it does help for some people. And, and maybe being in a more pastoral environment, and a lot of these uh, residential rehabs indeed are in the country, and it's nice to be in the country for a while, and it might help you feel better, you know. But if you're paying thirty dollars to $100,000 for it, which you are per month in the States, yeah. I want to take the horse home at the end of it if I'm paying that much. <laughs> the, some of these places charge insane amounts of money. And then they send the addicts back to their environment in the big city where, you're, where again, you're confronted with your isolation and loneliness and shitty life, and, uh, and you come back again and again and again. So there's a really powerful revolving door uh, um, phenomenon that, you know, it's just, it's, it's tragic. Anyway, so that was a way for me to insert that message into my answer to your question about equine therapy. I would imagine that as part of a multifaceted treatment regimen, it might have be useful for some people. I don't think overall it's a well-validated method. And it's fascinating, part of the resistance to a lot of what Mark says, I always think of that line Upton Sinclair, the great American writer, said, it's very hard to convince a man of a truth if his job depends on not understanding that truth. And there's a huge number of people who are making a lot of money out of the alternative way of thinking that's failed so badly. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Just going to be what my comment oh, sorry. about uh, how they kind of fight against that misinformation and propaganda and, and the stigma as well that's connected to addicts and the whole rehab cult and everything that goes along with it. How do you fight against that, given that you know we all have that potential for to become addicted? You know, there's still such a taboo yeah. against it. It just seems so daunting, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that rehab is bad, but there's this rehab industry. I don't know the stats here, but in, in, in the U.S., there's something like 
15 to 20,000 uh, rehab facilities, residential rehab facilities. And the costs truly range from, I guess, 10,000 at the low level to 100 to 150,000 per month at the high level. Some of these place are, places are really, uh, uh, well, the resorts, basically. They normally don't track their success rates. And if they do, they track their success rates for a very short period of time. They don't do follow-up. Why? Because they're making shitloads of money <laughs> and they don't want to know necessarily if things aren't working very well. So what do we do about that? And especially since there's this insidious marriage between the rehab industry and NIDA, the, um, the, the, the folks who bring you the disease model and support it with all the scientific you know, uh, um, neurobabble. Um, my stuff on the brain is not neurobabble. It's just, <laughs> That's, that's actually neuroscience. <laughs> uh, so what do we do about this? This is a very, very powerful amalgam. I think there have been a lot of voices raised in opposition. It's starting to be more and more. Johan's book is one of them. My book is another. Uh, people like Maya Salovitz, Sally Sattel, Carl uh, uh, Hart, Stanton Peel. There are a number of experts who are saying something is really wrong with this system. And uh, I think that wave is growing. And there's more and more horror stories coming from addicts who have been through this revolving door, like over and over and over again. I, I was actually doing Skype counseling with this heroin addict who just came back from a place, I guess I can name the place, because I'm not naming him, and the place is called Cliffside Malibu. Well, just the name, Cliffside Malibu. This is where you want to go for a vacation. <laughs> so he wanted to go to the high-end place, and somehow he got his insurance to cover it. But he he was blown away by how crappy the care was. And this place cost literally 100000 a month. He said there were people there who were actually using on the premises. One guy got his lawyer to come in and visit him. And he, was, he had uppers on one side of his jacket and opiates on the other. Wow, I want that lawyer. <laughs> and this is like fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, incredible. Uh, uh, but there's, and there, there's nasty stories coming out about people who are not being treated well. And as a result, some people are going on and becoming worse and getting entrenched, and some people are getting sick and dying. So it's, it's becoming a public outcry, and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow. Great. Well, thank you. Take the next question. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm a behavioural science student from Monash University, so I'm really interested in the overlays of the biopsychosocial elements and learning yeah. and where do you put epigenetics into this big Let's, picture? Yeah. And, sorry, um, sure. you know, just where the biology intersects or interfaces with your social environment and your, um, the psychological strength of the individual. Mark, just before you answer yeah. that, do you want to just step back and tell people what epigenetics sure. is because a lot of people won't know. Sure, sure. Um, Epigenetics is when environmental factors influence gene expression later in the lifespan. Or later in the genealogy. Or, yes, even in future generations. Back, right. Yeah. So it shows that, that experience actually impacts... It doesn't change the DNA code, but it changes the way the actual genes are expressed in, in, the, in the person's behavior, possibly in adulthood, possibly later in development, possibly even in their own children. Um, 
Epigenetics, you know, we're learning more and more about it, and it seems to be important in many aspects of learning. So epigenetics could be the case in any kind of abusive experience in childhood. If you have, let's say, a father or a mother who screams at you and, or treat, mistreats you, that can strongly affect the tendency toward depression or anxiety disorders later in life. That can have epigenetic causes, right? That certain genes, say serotonin uptake genes, will uh, be, be modified. So it's not specific to addiction. No. It's about learning. Mm. And, and you know, the thing that people sometimes don't understand, but you do now, having heard this talk, and seriously, um, is that they think that when this, you're talking about neurobiology, you must be supporting the disease model. Oh, if I'm talking about the brain, then I must, you know, be uh, uh, espousing an argument that, that some, the brain is hijacked in addiction. Well, no. I'm talking about the brain as a developmental psychologist who recognizes that brain change is really important for everything that happens to us. And so getting familiar with the biological details doesn't get us closer to the disease model. I think it actually gets us further away. To the, it gets us closer to the social model as well and how important the environment is in a child's life. Exactly. Or, a, or a, um, you know, back in the, the history of, of the gene expression as well. Yeah, that's right. Important factors that impact on development and cause... And in families. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank kind you. Of outcomes, yeah. And I guess that comes back to the earlier question about prevention as well. The, what would you say is the relationship between that insight and prevention? Yeah, that's a bit of a tough one. But I guess, yeah, it comes back to the idea of trying to get in there as early as possible, right? And, and to deal with, like, if, 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 if one, what, one, one hundredth, one twentieth of the money that we invest in dealing with addiction were invested in helping families that are in trouble, or, or engendering resilience in children. Yeah. Well, it's worth yeah. bearing in mind... That's mindfulness yeah. and yeah. self-determinism overlaying as well. Yeah. It's worth bearing in mind your government is currently spending billions of your tax dollars trying to keep drugs physically out of Australia when they can't even keep them out of your prisons, where you have a walled perimeter and you or pay schools. people to go around the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Or schools. This is something maybe you'd want to use the money for instead. We'll take the, yeah. thank you. We'll yeah. take the yeah. next question. Thank yeah. you. Um, I was just wondering about... With, I have a friend who used to be using ICE for many, many years. Mm -hmm. uh, prostitute, she went into prostitution to fund it, etc., etc. She did quit and she's 10 years clean and doing brilliantly. Mm -hmm. She has a sister who's alcohol addicted. Mm -hmm. uh, when her sister has gone into rehab, she's, she said that is so much harder than giving up ICE. You've got that whole physical... Um, going through that whole detoxing stage where she said with the ICE, she said it's psychological. So she yeah. said once she removed herself from the environment, everything that you were saying there, she mm. did go to the country, yeah. not to a $100,000 a week place. Yeah. Um, but she basically removed herself. Now, what I'm wondering is yeah. with how we're dealing with this ice problem that we have, which is yeah. so severe, what's going into actually the facts about, okay, maybe we need to be setting up places for kids or whoever to get away from those environments right. and that it's not this horrendous, like with opiates or alcohol when you're severely addicted, that it can be done mm -hmm. under the right circumstances. So changing physical and social environments is, yeah, it's a really powerful tool. And this is actually the case with, with Brian in my book, uh, The Meth Addict. Um, he, he did end up uh, in a rural environment actually shepherding sheep for a period of time. Um, and, and, you know, it's like 
When you change your life that much, everything changes. And then, then the appeal of smoking or shooting a, a drug that makes you feel a very, you know, the same way that has made you feel the last, you know, 500 times you did it, becomes boring at the very least and possibly unpleasant. It no longer serves the same function. And it becomes much easier to give up, becomes a lot less attractive and in fact quite repellent. So I don't know what else to say. I think that's... Yeah, it's a really important strategy. I'm just wondering what our government is doing about it, you know? Um, and this addiction. Yes, I, I believe it's more habit than addiction with ice, and maybe well, it just is... I mean, addiction is habit, I think. Yeah. It is habit. It's a habit of thinking. You know, it's almost... It's, it's a belief. Addiction is actually a belief. You believe that taking this thing is going to make you feel better, even though... It very often doesn't, especially after the first while. Once it gets boring and repetitive and repulsive enough, it doesn't make you feel better, but you still believe it does. Well, that's a habit too. It's a habit of mind. So it's a habit of thinking and a habit of behavior and, a, and also a habit of doing, but it's also a whole, a whole belief system. And all of it is interconnected and all of it can change because beliefs change, right? Great. Well, uh, thank you for your question. This is going to be the last question, so yeah, make it good. Uh, <laughs> no, no pressure. Yeah. Uh, hi, Mark. Thanks hi. very much. Um, as I understand it, uh, when we're talking about certain anxiety disorders as well, we also talk about um, learned associations with them. So, for example, PTSD and major phobia disorders. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they talk about in relation to that as well is extinction therapy. Uh, and I know that you mentioned that one of the hardest things for addicts is, you know, resisting these cues and the cravings. Yeah. So I'm wondering, is there any place for that sort of extinction therapy, exposure to those cues in a safe environment uh, for addicts as well in terms of treatment? Yeah, good question. The thing is that extinction therapy is kind of the default because you're driving by the liquor store and the idea is not to go in, right? There's liquor stores everywhere. <laughs> or, you know, or you're surrounded by people... You know the phone numbers of your dealers unless you, you know, manage to forget them. So the cues are right there, available, staring you in the face, and yet, you know, you're trying not to go there. Well, the trouble is that you get into ego fatigue. You get into trying to suppress the impulse because it is still within your power to get the thing. It's not like being in a room where people are introducing spiders if you have a spider phobia, but the spiders are in a cage. There's nothing you can do about that, and it's just exposure because we're generally free agents and can walk around and can call that dealer and get that drug if we want to badly enough, then it's, the impulse is there and the action is possible and then you try to suppress it and then you get ego fatigue and then you pull back into it. I don't think it's the most effective approach. So, for example, just quickly, uh, for smokers, I know that oftentimes smokers say one of the hardest things in quitting smoking is being around other people who are smoking. Sure, yeah. But uh, as they do that more and more, it sort of... Um, they, they, that helps them get over it, uh, I suppose. Is, is that a parallel at all there? I think if you combine it with what I was saying before, instead of suppression, reframing. So reframing is that, you know, this is actually not fun. This actually tastes like shit. I mean, this is, you know... It's like if you reframe it, then you have a chance to overcome it without having to uh, be the victim of, of, of ego fatigue. And... Uh, you know, it just involves a certain psychological cleverness, which you could be helped with by, by a psychologist or by anyone else who's got some expertise in, in, in thinking about those matters. 
don't suppress reframe feels like the answer, not just narrowly, but in a much wider context, feels like a good point on which to end. Mark's going to be signing both his books. I recommend reading both of them. They're fantastic in the foyer uh, imminently. So please thank him very much. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.